Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, good morning and welcome to Tuesday. It is the 7th of the 6th, 2022. 7th day of June. Nice to have your company, Marcus Paul, in the morning. Right around Australia here on starterfm.com.au, on the iHeartRadio platform on TuneIn. And maybe you're listening to us via the Prawncast, the podcast, which drops a little later in the day. Doesn't matter how you listen to us, as long as you're there, and I do appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining us. Plenty of news on the way today. I'm going to speak very soon on uh, the referendum. That Well, I was about to say, the, what did I say, the referendum? I meant to say the Republic. You know, we have an assistant minister for the Republic, but we don't have a minister. And I can't quite work that out. What is Matt, Matt Thistlewake going to do? Apart from probably go to... Many dinners being chased by pirate Pete Fitzsimons. Anyway, I'll talk about that. Uh, we got that. We got some changes to uh, uh, industrial relations in New South Wales. Announcements made galore yesterday by a very chirpy New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet. He got the checkbook out. He's spending a lot of money. There'll be an increase. Uh, not what the unions wanted, but it's a start for nurses and uh, those that have been pushing for pay rises for a hell of a long time. There is one problem, though. A $3,000 bonus payment to be made by uh, made to New South Wales health workers, has, you know, government workers, has many others left a little, well, <laughs> FOMO'd. They fear they're missing out, and they are. All very well, and it's great that we're going to be rewarding uh, nurses and others that, you know, did damn fine work during the pandemic, but they weren't the only ones. Why aren't the coppers in particular, police, why aren't they getting this extra $3,000 one-off payment from the New South Wales government? We will talk about that. Uh, what other issues are we going to... Oh, I've got a really nice story. I've got a 104-year-old woman... And it was a story that I came across yesterday that I want to share with you. She celebrated a 104th birthday at Matraville in Sydney last weekend with 70 people. Her last marriage <laughs> was 20-odd years ago, and, you know, she was popped the question when she was in her 80s. Great story. It's a beautiful story. I'll get to that. That's coming up a little later on the program as well. Um... Look, yesterday, the former New South Wales Premier John Barillaro had a win. It means, I think, uh, a step back in a way for free speech here in Australia. That's my position on it. Although I'm, you know, like everybody, I have to respect the court's decision. But former New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barillaro was awarded 715k in defamation damages from Google. Now, the other issue, of course, is that not only YouTube or Google, but Jordan Shanks, my mate, friendly Geordies, faces possible prosecution for contempt of court. I'll explain all in detail in just a few moments. Um, it was a shock. I I knew that Mr. Barillaro was going to, because Google basically threw in the towel. They dropped all of their defences, and I knew that 
Uh, I was about to call him Bruz. Can, can you still... No. Apparently it's racist. Anyway, I knew that the former Deputy Premier was going to have a win, but I was surprised by how much. And also the fact that that so far doesn't include legal costs. So you can probably throw on an extra million bucks somewhere along the line or certainly half a million bucks. Anyway, we'll go into that story. Plenty of uh, beats for your morning, some great music on the way, and we'll keep you up to date with the latest news as well, courtesy of our friends in the newsroom at Air News. This is Tuesday Morning with Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have you come. It's Tuesday morning with Marcus Paul live on Starter FM around Australia, of course, on the iHeartRadio platform and tune in. And if you're with us on the Prawncast, the podcast, I hope you're having a good morning so far. Well, some good news yesterday. New South Wales public sector workers will now get a pay rise above the long-standing 2.5% cap. That's according to the New South Wales Premier. Dominic Perrottet says public sector wages will increase by 3% in the next financial year and up to 3.5% the year after, depending on productivity gains. Now, this provides for remuneration increases of up to 6.5% over two years, though if inflation continues to remain at, say, 5.1%, they will still effectively lose out. So the union's probably not happy. I'll get to that. Existing health workers, paramedics, midwives, cleaners and other New South Wales health employees will also receive a one-off $3,000 payment and that will be in recognition of their efforts during the pandemic. That's what the Premier said yesterday. A record 10,148 full-time equivalent staff will also be recruited to hospitals and health services across New South Wales over the coming four years. Now, just back to that $3,000 payment. Now, it is in recognition of the efforts during the pandemic. That's for New South Wales health employees. So, paramedics, midwives, cleaners and others. But it doesn't include police. And I'm just wondering whether um, the police union are happy about that. I'm hearing no. Now, Dominic Perrottet said 7,674 more workers would be recruited in the first year, which will help ease pressure on COVID-fatigued health staff and fast-track more elective surgery for patients, we're told. The Premier said yesterday, everyone in New South Wales is indebted to our health workers for their selfless efforts throughout the pandemic. Remembering for a long time there was no vaccine and they risked their lives each day for the care of patients. This record investment will help us care for health staff across the state, providing the respite and backup they need. It will also boost staff numbers in hospitals to deliver quality health care closer to home, ensuring better health outcomes and a brighter future for New South Wales families. That's what the Premier said yesterday. Look, the additional staff will include nurses and midwives, doctors, paramedics, pathologists, pharmacists and support and auxiliary staff. The wage rise, which is above the 2.5% cap that has been in place since 2011, comes after industrial action and strikes, as we know, from teachers, nurses, paramedics and other government workers in recent months. Treasurer Matt Keane said the increase in wages was fair and sustainable in the current economic climate. 
Now, the Treasurer said yesterday, New South Wales is currently enjoying the lowest unemployment on record and it is important to maintain competitive wages to attract and retain the best talent. He also added, in the context of a strong and growing economy, this two-year increase to wages is an affordable and sensible policy. All right, well, the Public Service Association last week set a Monday deadline for the government to commit to a 5.4% pay rise, otherwise it vowed there would be a strike this coming Wednesday. The union says they are considering the offer, but they're waiting to see it in writing. The PSA, that's the Public Service Association's General Secretary, Stuart Little, says they will wait. They want to see everything in writing, so at this stage they will consider the offer. Finance Minister Damien Tudhope called on unions to pause their industrial action. Now, there will also be a boost to the health workforce with plans to recruit 10,148 full-time equivalent staff to hospitals and health services across the state over four years, as well as more than 1,800 new paramedics. The Health Minister, Brad Hazard, said the $4.5 billion investment over four years was intended to relieve pressure on existing staff and ensure appropriate levels of health staffing for health infrastructure projects. Okay, well, what does the state opposition have to say? Labor Party leader Chris Minns said he was glad there had been a breakthrough between unions and the government. He said yesterday... It's going to certainly address some of the issues in relation to ambulance waiting times. Labor would still be scrutinising the announcement, Mr Min said, noting the government's behind on a 2019 election promise to recruit 1,500 more police officers by the end of this year. In addition to increased wages, the government needs to mandate nurse-to-patient ratios if it was going to attract and retain new workers. That's according to the New South Wales Greens. Kate Furman, their spokesperson, said they will struggle attracting skilled healthcare workers to fill these new spots. Now, Ms Furman said the announcement of additional staff did nothing for current health workers. All right, the Health Services Union Secretary, Gerard Hayes, said the government should be able to fill the new roles and the expanded workforce would bring relief to exhausted staff. It's too little, too late, but this will go some way to making health fit for purpose, Miss Hayes said yesterday. New South Wales Ambulance Commissioner Dominic Morgan said around 200 offers were being sent to paramedic graduates many of whom are already eligible for employment. So that will place a significant injection to take the immediate pressure off our AMBO services. So a big day yesterday for industrial relations in New South Wales. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, welcome back. Tuesday morning, one of the big stories we covered yesterday, particularly on our social media here at Marcus Paul in the morning, was the fact that the former New South Wales Deputy Premier, John Marilaro, had a win. Mr Marilaro received a $715,000 payout in defamation damages from Google. A judge ordering Google to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages to the former New South Wales Deputy Premier. Now, his YouTube nemesis, Jordan Shanks, of course, Jordan was the source of the videos 
now faces possible prosecution for contempt of court. The now retired MP sued Google, the owner of YouTube, and the commentator Shanks over videos uh, that we know called Bruzz and Secret Dictatorship published on the Friendly Geordies channel back in 2020. The videos included claims that Barilaro was a corrupt con man who should be jailed, who committed perjury nine times and engaged in blackmail. The now retired MP settled his federal court case against Jordan Shanks in November of last year when Friendly Jordis provided an apology, edited the videos and was ordered to pay $100,000 costs to Barilaro. Google initially defended the case, but later withdrew all defences and conceded the widely viewed videos defamed the former Deputy Premier. Now, yesterday in the federal court in Sydney, Justice Stephen Rares said Mr Barilaro was subjected to a relentless, racist, abusive and defamatory campaign on YouTube for over a year. The judge said he was scathing. He said that Shanks repeatedly and vindictively used descriptions of him like wog, greasy, greasy little scrotum, meatball and other innuendos linking him to the Italian Mafia. Shanks also engaged in alleged cyberbullying, trying to intimidate Barilaro from bringing proceedings to court and to intimidate Barilaro's lawyers from acting for him. In a YouTube video, Bruz Eternal, which dropped back in May 2021, Shanks said Barilaro and his lawyers should have watched the video he published earlier about Clive Palmer, saying it would have given you a preview into what threatening to sue me would look like for you. Shanks then told viewers that he had created and was selling a keychain which he displayed with Barilaro's head on a Mario cap and a scrotum below it. <laughs> uh, the justice yesterday said Google was part and parcel of this disgusting behaviour because it facilitated, published and kept on YouTube this and similar videos. Days after his settlement, with Barilaro, Shanks, of course, mocked it and threatened, we finish the defo suit, but make no mistake, this entire ordeal is far from over. He repeated segments from earlier videos of his apparent racist and offensive comments. Now, Google did nothing to stop the conduct on its YouTube platform, and Google's conduct in this proceeding was improper and unjustifiable, according to Justice Rares. He said that conduct aggravated the damage to Barilaro's reputation and the hurt to his feelings very considerably. In my opinion, this is the judge, in my opinion, it is necessary to award a substantial sum in damages to compensate Barilaro for the harm that Google caused to him and vindicate his reputation. Now, Justice Rares, as I mentioned, has referred the conduct of Shanks and Google to the court's principal registrar to consider proceedings against each for what appear to be a serious contempts of court by bringing improper pressure to bear on Barilaro and his lawyers not to pursue this proceeding. The judge will also hear from the parties on what costs order he should make. So there'll be extra money uh, going to the former Deputy Premier of New South Wales, John Barilaro. Now, of course, Jordan Shanks responded yesterday 
online. I expect probably something on video in the coming days. Now, bearing in mind, of course, that, I mean, I have my opinion on this, but considering it's a, a finding by the court, um, we have to tread a very fine line here. But anyway, Jordan mentioned yesterday in his response, Well done, John. You finally scored the coin from Google. Class acts. And you managed to get it without ever having the truth tested in court. You claimed parliamentary privilege to prevent evidence being run against you. You withdrew your action against us so we wouldn't testify or present our evidence. Poor old Google were left to carry the can. I guess they are rich enough not to care. We now know that around the same time your lawyers were drafting your concerns notice, you went to the terror police and a strike force with full surveillance powers was set up against us, the very people you intended to sue. Is it just us or does something about that smell? That was the first response from Friendly Geordies yesterday. There was another one a little later. Pretty ball behaviour, he wrote from Channel 7. They went to Christo's grandmother's house to ask for a comment about Barillaro's defamation case. Christo wasn't sued, let alone his family. This is even more ironic considering Christo faced criminal stalking charges because he bumped into Barillaro. Are the fixated persons unit going to do anything about this? All right, well, I'm sure we'll hear a little bit more. I'm, I haven't spoken to Jordan personally, but I, I, I will probably at some point during this week. Um, I do hope uh, that this is the end of the matter. I, I really do hope that that's the case, but we don't know. There could well be prosecution for contempt of court against Google and Jordan Shanks in the winds. As they say, watch this space. Marcus Paul in the morning. Brazamia! Yeah, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. Just uh, some more on Friendly Geordies and the announcement yesterday by Justice Rez to award former Deputy Premier of New South Wales, John Barillaro, uh, compensation to the tune of $715,000. Now, of course, you know the story, or if you've just tuned in, Google and Friendly Geordies are now facing potential criminal charges for contempt of court after former New South Wales Premier John Barillaro was awarded $715,000 for racist and defamatory videos that accused him of corruption. Now, the word racist is thrown in there by the author of, well, pretty much everyone in the mainstream. They're piling on Jordan, which I, I knew they would, okay? Um, but they are referring to what the good justice said. But a legal expert warns the case could have a chilling effect on free speech and regular Australians should be the ones on the hook for defamatory posts, not media or tech companies. Federal Court Justice Stephen Rares yesterday held Google liable for racist and abusive videos posted by Jordan Shanks, aka Friendly Geordies, which triggered a defamation lawsuit from former New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barillaro. Now, the justice also took the significant step of referring Google and Friendly Geordies to the principal registrar of the court, which will now consider laying criminal contempt charges. 
Mr Shanks engaged in cyberbullying in this campaign, trying to intimidate Mr Barilaro from exercising another important right of every citizen in our democracy, namely the right to bring proceedings in the courts, Justice Rare said yesterday. Mr Shanks and Google, as the publisher of his attacks, attempted to bring improper pressure to bear on Mr Barilaro and his lawyers. Now, media lawyer Justin Quill, who apparently acts for the Daily Telegraph as well as tech companies as a partner at Thomas Gia, said the contempt recommendation is, quote, very, very serious. He says the possibility of contempt charges is very serious and has criminal ramifications, but it's just being considered at this stage and it's not a certainty that any charges will be laid. Whether charges are laid now or how they're defended will be really interesting. And I can see some defences already that Google would want to run. Now, Google has been ordered to pay Mr Barilaro $715,000 in damages, and that comes after Friendly Geordies was ordered to pay $100,000 to cover some of the former politician's legal costs. Now, Mr Quill yesterday said... $715,000 is a large sum, a disappointing result for free speech. It is likely to have somewhat of a chilling effect on free speech. Defamation law is always about balancing free speech with rights to protect one's reputation. The court has yet to conclude who should pay the legal bills, which are likely a combined $1 million for both sides. The damages and legal costs may result in Google launching an appeal, according to Mr Quill. Tech companies have a legal defence known as innocent dissemination, where they will not be held liable for defamatory posts if they take down offending material after becoming aware of it. The problem here, of course, is the fact that Google did not take the videos down. Traditional media companies do not have the same defence, according to the experts, and the judgment against Google is unlikely to change any laws that appear to favour tech companies over traditional media here in Australia. Now, Mr Quill warned regular Australians that they are considered primary publishers when they post defamatory things on social media and the courts could hold them accountable just like a newspaper editor. Now, Mr Quill said yesterday, people need to remember that whether you're friendly Geordies or the average mum or dad, you are a publisher. I believe it's those people, not tech or media companies, that should be on the hook. The law of defamation in Australia really only protects the rich and famous. Movie actors, celebrities, politicians, these are the ones usually availing themselves of defamation law in Australia. Now, Justice Rares, in his judgment, highlighted a horrific threat made against Mr Barilaro's family and wondered why tech companies with their algorithms and safeguards had not filtered it out. He called for Parliament to consider bringing in laws to prevent it in the future. The Justice said the ability of social media entities to publish and enable the communication of such material without constraint is a matter that the Parliament ought to be considering. All right, well, there we go. Uh, if you want to comment on it, um, you can do so. Of course, there are plenty of posts up on our Facebook page. Marcus Paul in the morning. Powered by spaghetti. 
Okay, Marcus Paul in the morning. Let's move on to something just a, a little different, some lighter uh, content, some entertainment news. And I, uh, I had a little look, a little squiz at the telly on Sunday night at that concert that was held for the Platinum Jubilee for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Um, it was okay. I, I loved Elton John. Uh, there were some acts that, you know, I mean, it, it depends on your taste. There should, obviously, I think there was something for everybody. But where was Sir Paul McCartney? Where was Adele? Where was Coldplay? The failure to book the UK's top acts for the party at the Palace has fans asking why their favourite stars were rejected for, I don't know, somebody like Diana Ross. Underwhelmed fans have questioned the absence of Britain's biggest pop and rock stars at the Platinum Party at the Palace. Now the Union Jack flags and streamers have been dumped into recycling bins. Bemused fans remain unimpressed by the BBC's concert lineup, which had a smattering of A-list stars, a raft of second-tier pop acts, and an American headliner. Yet many fans complained about Diana Ross closing out the show instead of perhaps Adele, the Spice Girls, Sam Smith, and what about old Ginge, Ed Sheeran? He popped up to sing Perfect at the Platinum Jubilee pageant the day after the big gig, apparently. Hmm. LA-paced pop phenomenon Adele, who is the UK's highest-selling musical export in the last decade, is a reluctant live performer but is gearing up for her first live concerts back home in more than five years, playing two gigs in High Park in the coming month, July. She is also yet to announce the rescheduled dates for her beleaguered 12-week Las Vegas residency, which was cancelled at the last minute in January, and was possibly not wanting to anger frustrated fans with a set, perhaps, at the Queen's Jubilee concert. I don't know. Who was there for Australia? Oh, Jason Donovan. Did Kylie? Hang on. Oh, no, Kylie wasn't there. She was apparently in America, launching, I don't know, something, some wine or whatever. So Jason Donovan flew the Australian flag on the hill. (laughs) Anyway, he he did a theatre segment. He sang Any Dream Will Do from Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, But I reckon, you know, he would have been better teaming up with Kylie. All right, well, Coldplay wasn't the only British superstars missing from the Platinum Party lineup because of their tour schedule. Uh, with Sir Paul McCartney and the Rolling Stones wowing audience with their current gigs and Harry Styles gearing up to resume his Love on Top world tour in Scotland this weekend. Anyway, so some of the biggest, basically, the story is some of the biggest acts weren't there. But apparently, according to this article, The biggest unsolved mystery from the BBC's Platinum Party was why the broadcaster made Rod Stewart sing Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline instead of one of dozens of his own hits. (laughs) Before he launched into the song, old Rockin' Rod, who I think uses more hairspray than is available in Western Sydney, This is a fun one for me to sing. The BBC made me sing it. Join in. Make it comfortable for me. 
Yeah, which kind of tells you he's happy to be there but not happy to be singing that song. The concert was a television ratings bonanza with a peak audience of 13 million viewers in the UK. And here in Australia, 825,000 people tuned into Channel 7's primetime replay on Sunday night. Did you watch it? What did you think? Let me know. It was light. Marcus Paul in the morning. Alrighty, Marcus Paul in the morning. Please give us a follow on Facebook and a subscribe on our YouTube channel, Marcus Paul in the morning. Big story out today from the Reserve Bank. They are expected to lift the official cash rate. Yep. There'll be a hike in interest rates today by as much as 0.5% and to 2% before Christmas, which will mean there'll be plenty of people who will be in so-called mortgage stress. In fact, a report I'd read yesterday said that half of all households with a mortgage will be unable to make ends meet by Christmas. As a run of interest rate rises plunges an extra half a million households into the red. Gee whiz, that's very pessimistic, isn't it? The Reserve Bank is expected to lift its benchmark cash rate by as much as 0.5% today after a 0.25% increase last month. That was the first since 2010. A half a percentage point increase following the board meeting today would bring the cash rate to 0.85% and add $211 a month to repayments on the average new New South Wales 25-year mortgage of $786,000. While a 50 basis point jump is being forecast by several leading economists, the most popular tip is a 40 basis point increase. Now, that would add $168 to monthly instalments on that average new loan I mentioned. The other option, a 0.25% bump, would slap on around $105 a month. Look, whatever number the RBA chooses, it's highly unlikely to be the last hike this year. Many analysts, including those from the Macquarie Bank, AMP, Goldman Sachs, are among those predicting a 2% cash rate by Christmas. So too is Numura senior economist Andrew Ticehurst. He says the RBA will start with a 40 basis point increase to 0.75% today in a bid to put a break on inflation. Now, the RBA has not applied an increase larger than 25 basis points since February 2000. But Mr Ticehurst said there were signs that our economy is overheating. He said the RBA is an inflation-targeting central bank, and it is seeing more signs that wages are accelerating, which is probably, yeah, where? (laughs) Anyway, it's probably going to make them think that this pickup in inflation is sustainable. It's more than just an oil price shock coming from the war in Ukraine. Leading industry observer, digital finance analytics principal Martin North, yesterday said that a 2% cash rate would increase the share of households in mortgage stress from around 44% to almost 50%. It's an unprecedented situation. We've got more than 4 million households out of nearly 10 million who are already close to the edge. Mr North went on to say, if we assume the RBA adds 2% or just about that, 
another 400 to half a million people would probably fall into that so-called stress category. We'd be knocking on close to a half of all households with a mortgage being in stress. Now, according to DFA, which is Digital Finance Analytics, they use nearly 5,000 phone monthly surveys to gauge the financial position of Australian households. They've been doing so since the year 2000. And according to them, households are in stress if they are spending more on necessities and loan repayments than they are earning from work, welfare and investments. Now, the data shows the Campbelltown area, that's in southwest Sydney, in MacArthur, has more mortgages already going backwards than anywhere else in the nation. Over 10,000 households in Campbelltown in the MacArthur are in stress. Around five in every six with a home loan. Some areas around Perth, Tapping, for instance, is second by sheer numbers, followed by Berwick in Melbourne and then in regional Queensland, Toowoomba. New South Wales has the biggest number of households in trouble, some 460,000, but in percentage terms, stress is more common in Tasmania, Victoria and South Australia. Now, the moneysmart.gov.au website does have excellent tools for helping households work out where their money is going, but according to experts, some are going to have to decide whether that mobile phone subscription or, you know, whether subscribing to Stan, Netflix and all of the, all of them is more important than paying the mortgage. Some tough decisions are going to have to be made. Marcus Paul in the morning. Hey Marcus Paul in the morning. Look, I just spoke a, a moment or two ago about the Reserve Bank and their move today possibly to hike interest rates. Well, in other banking news, major Australian bank ANZ has announced yesterday six weeks of paid gender affirmation leave in support of workers who are gender transitioning. The newly created gender affirmation leave also includes up to 12 months unpaid leave. In a media statement, the bank said it will assist staff as they undergo any aspect of gender affirmation, including social, medical and legal gender affirmation. The six weeks of paid leave means people who are affirming their gender do not need to exhaust their annual leave or sick leave entitlements, while also easing some of the financial pressures. That's according to the ANZ's Diversity and Inclusion Lead. Yes, that's a title. And her name is Fiona McDonald. It comes as other major banks and companies, including Westpac, Allianz and Coles, also now offer some variation of gender affirmation leave. The ANZ provided examples of the different forms of gender affirmation. Social, adopting the dress and style of presentation that better aligns with their gender identity and expression, changing their pronouns and or name, Medical, that is for surgery, hormone therapy or both. Medical appointments, rest and recovery from medical procedures. And legal, legally changing their name and or gender marker on personal identification documents such as passport, birth certificate, driver's licence or bank card. Now, the Coalition for Biological Reality 
that's a group campaigning for strict definitions of biological sex, said the bank's move is incredibly irresponsible. Really? They said yesterday, this is not equality and I'm sure many employees will be resentful of this special treatment for their trans-identifying colleagues. To include social transition as worthy of paid leave is incredibly irresponsible of the ANZ. But LGBTQ plus advocacy group Equality Australia said the leave allowance should be commended. They said yesterday, through a statement from advocate Jackie Turner, the ANZ should be commended for joining a growing list of corporations to adopt a gender affirmation leave policy. Now, gender affirmation leave and other policies that explicitly support trans and gender diverse employees are a vital part of taking care of workers in modern workplaces. She went on to say, they give trans people the freedom to be ourselves, removing barriers in the workplace, reducing our experience of discrimination and allowing us to access the support we need to live good lives without sacrificing our jobs or employability. Trans and gender diverse people face disproportionately higher rates of unemployment compared with the general population. Setting standards for gender affirmation leave goes some way toward ensuring we are welcomed into Australian workplaces for the skills and experience we bring. <laughs> I'm surprised they haven't gone to Mark Latham about this. Ah, oh, we know what he would say. Anyway, National Secretary of the Finance Sector Union, Julia Angrisano, said, quote, ANZ's announcement follows other encouraging steps from several finance sector employers that have taken leadership in this area, such as Westpac, the Commonwealth Bank, as well as Australian Super. While we welcome the announcement, we are pursuing clauses across the sector with greater entitlements and protections for our trans members, and these clauses are subject to negotiations for collective agreements. ANZ, ANZ that is, should return to the table and negotiate a new agreement that includes progressive and inclusive clauses for all of its workforce. Okay, uh, what do you make of all of that? You can let me know on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning. Alrighty, welcome back, Marcus Paul in the morning. It is a Tuesday, it is the 7th day of June. You can, of course, at any time, uh, give us a call on our hotline. I haven't mentioned that for a while, 0406 uh, Give us a, a like and follow on Facebook and, of course, subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. Should we go nuclear? Well, I saw a story yesterday um, caught my attention. The majority of Australians say it's time to go nuclear to save money and to save the planet. But then I realised who wrote it. I nearly fell over. James Morrow, our mate from Sky. Anyway, as the gas crisis bites and power bills threaten to skyrocket, even Greens voters are backing the nuclear option, according to a survey. OK. Well, Aussies are increasingly willing to embrace nuclear power as a means to provide reliable power while cutting carbon emissions as the country stares down the barrel of an energy crisis brought on by a gas supply crunch, outages at coal-fired power stations and a rushed race to embrace renewables. <laughs> a rushed race. 
<laughs> See, I told you it was written by Morrow. Anyway, according to data from the Institute for Public Affairs, isn't that a Liberal think tank? 53% of Australians agreed with the statement Australia should build nuclear power plants to supply electricity and reduce emissions. By contrast, just 23% of those surveys disagreed with the statement, while 24% said they neither agreed nor disagreed. They also found that support for the nuclear option was surprisingly bipartisan. While 70% of those who identified themselves as coalition voters said they would support a push for nuclear power, 52% of Labor voters agreed with it, with a startling 44% of Greens voters also in favour of exploring the idea. Look, where are you on this, the nuclear debate? I'm for it. Uh, Nuclear power is being generated safely and environmentally uh, safe as well in many countries around the world. For for the likes of me, I can't understand why we haven't gone down this path. Anyway, that's just my thought on that. The data comes as Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen moved to call an emergency meeting with his state counterparts to address the current gas crisis, triggering a war of words with a coalition over who is to blame. Um... Now, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, who was in Indonesia yesterday, said before he left on Sunday, remember, the coalition used to talk about the gas-led recovery. They talked about that for years. Well, where is it? This is a government that sat on their hands. They had 22 different energy policies and didn't deliver one. Ouch. Albo comes out swinging. But Nationals leader David Littleproud hit back yesterday saying that Labor had to share the blame. The gas companies are high up in the stirrups because they can see the price where they are, he said. They've had a Labor opposition that were demonising them for nine years, saying they were part of the problem in our emissions and now they want to turn around and befriend them when they need them. Yeah, well, it's kind of a little true in a way. I hate to say it, what David Little Proud, the point he's making, he's right. Anyway, nuclear power is common across the developed world, supplying 70% of France's electricity needs, as well as 20% of electricity in the United States and 15% in the United Kingdom and Canada. Last month, in the face of energy security issues brought on by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced that his country would build one new nuclear plant each year, while French President Emmanuel Macron has vowed a similar push. While if it's good enough for Canada, the United States, France, the United Kingdom, then why not Australia? A fortnight ago, Finland's Green Party also approved a resolution urging their government to go nuclear, saying it was a reliable and sustainable energy source. However, here in Australia, which holds the most uranium deposits of any country in the world, which makes this whole debate so ironic, bans nuclear power and forbids the Environment Minister from, quote, approving an action consisting of or involving the construction or operation of a nuclear power plant. Both Labor and the Liberals have said they are not open to the nuclear discussion, with new opposition leader Peter Dutton saying that atomic energy was, quote, not on the table. But Mr Littleproud said that his party would continue to push for nuclear. 
So that's the Nationals. Um, Daniel Wild, <coughs> excuse me, who is the Director of Research at the Institute of Public Affairs, said... Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and opposition leader Peter Dutton should come together and show leadership to repeal the ban on nuclear power in Australia, which can provide low-cost and reliable baseload power. He said the energy crisis in Australia is a design feature of a net-zero emissions by 2050 target that will only be solved by reliable, affordable baseload power from coal and nuclear Alrighty, well, a poll of over 1,000 Australians was conducted by Dinata on behalf of the Institute of Public Affairs. And as I said, surprisingly, even those that vote green, some of them say they'd be keen to go nuclear. The majority of Australians do say it's time to go nuclear to help save their pocket and perhaps save the planet. Where do you sit on the nuclear debate? Let me know, Marcus Paul, in the morning. Okay, welcome back, Marcus Paul, in the morning. Uh, Now to open this can of worms. You know, last week, here in Australia, we swore in our first ever Assistant Minister for the Republic. And it sparked speculation the new Prime Minister might push for a referendum on becoming a republic. Probably not the kind of debate we should be having as the monarch has celebrated, uh, what, Platinum Jubilee. Anyway, Anthony Albanese, the new Prime Minister, has openly shown his support for transitioning to a Republican model. But according to Republic advocate and author Dennis Altman, Australia is unlikely to hold a vote anytime soon. He told the ABC... Anthony Albanese made it very clear during the campaign that his first priority for constitutional change was Indigenous recognition. That means that the Republic inevitably is the second order of business. In fact, I think he's hinted that it's something that would not even be raised unless there is a second Labor government re-elected in three years' time. Members of the Republican movement celebrated when Sydney Labor MP Matt Thistlewaite was sworn in as Assistant Minister for the Republic. However, it is still unclear what the new position involves. Mr Altman said yesterday it costs nothing to call someone Assistant Minister for the Republic. Look, the whole thing's a little strange. Thistlewaite is the Assistant Minister for the Republic, but who's the minister? We don't have a minister for the Republic. Uh, I don't know. Look, again, I think it's probably just putting in the the early work, if you like, and if Labor do win another term in office, perhaps then they'll look at that after the Indigenous issue. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what Matt Thistlewaite would do in the job, but presumably he'll go to a number of dinners. (laughs) Oh, dear. Maybe. Mr Thistlewaite told ABC his role would initially be one of education. There we go. It's about explaining to people that we do have a foreign monarch as our head of state. Really? We need an assistant minister for that? We have a proxy representative in the Governor-General. Yeah, we know that as well. But we can have an Australian as our head of state. An Australian Republic is about celebrating our independence and our unique culture and identity. Well, I wonder whether Matt Thistlewaite, 
should be blocking uh, pirate Pete Fitzsimons from his phone. (laughs) Anyway, he also confirmed that establishing a voice to parliament for First Nations people was the government's priority, but he wanted to start the serious conversation once again about what comes next for Australia after Queen Elizabeth's reign ends. Advocates for Australia to become a republic want to remove the Queen as the head of state and have an Australian citizen elected to the role. This representative head of state would not set government policy or pass laws, so the role basically would be, you know, mostly ceremonial. The Australian Republic movement recently proposed a new model for a republic that would see each state parliament plus the federal parliament select a candidate for head of state. The public would then vote for its preferred representative. But Mr Alpen, who I mentioned earlier, believes the voting system would be too complicated. He said it's essentially an attempt by the Republican movement to, on the one hand, make sure we don't get a crazy dingbat as head of state, but at the same time, that people have a real say. He goes on, and I think one of the real problems with it is that it's almost impossible in a country in which there are deep political divisions to find a method that everybody is going to be comfortable with. Well, it's not like we haven't been here before. Australia held a referendum on becoming a republic back in 1999. Remember, it failed. And the issue has not been high on the political agenda uh, since. Uh, The sense is that most Australians feel about the republic rather like the character in Alice in Wonderland who wanted jam yesterday and jam tomorrow, but jam, but never jam today. That is, we think it's a good idea in theory, we're not quite sure how to go about it, and it really isn't that important because in reality it doesn't change very much. There's also a strong level of support in Australia for the sitting monarch, well of course there is, particularly since Queen Elizabeth II celebrated 70 years on the throne over the weekend. The reality is, you and me and everybody, we've all grown up with her. We all grew up with incessant, constant images of the royal family, the comings, the goings, the divorces, the deaths, the marriages, through all of that. So the Queen has remained that one constant figure. While despite a new Labor government that strongly supports a republic, Dennis Altman is unsure that Australia will ever become one. He said, The head of state is someone living in London... But the emotional ties, the attraction of performance, uh, 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 sorry, of permanence, the idea that somehow we have managed to find a system that removes the head of state from the day-to-day political intrigues, I think goes quite deep. So, you know, if I were a lot younger, I would say, yes, of course, at some point we should become a republic. More cynically, my hunch is that we may not actually become a republic until the British decide to become a republic. Oh, poor old King Charles, eh? So what do you make of it? Are you for or against? I'll put something up on our Facebook page uh, so you can have your say on it. Should Australia go down that path again? Should we be looking at another referendum on Australia becoming a republic? Or should we leave the status quo as it is? In my opinion, eventually, yes, we should. Uh, however, I, I don't think we should be moving until uh, the current monarch ends. Uh, that is, the, uh, uh, 
I hate to say it, but obviously the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, uh, Tuesday morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have your company. Uh, don't forget to go to our Facebook page. You can comment on that can of worms, that debate that uh, we've just opened up on a possible referendum on a republic. Again, I can't see it happening for quite a number of years. Maybe it might be something that the Albanese government may look at if it gets a second term. All right, um, uh, we know that Her Majesty, um, who celebrated her Platinum Jubilee, uh, 70 years on the throne, uh, what is the Queen? Is she 94, 95? I'm not quite sure. She's certainly not 104. But there is a woman in Matraville in Sydney who celebrated her 104th birthday over the weekend. Yeah, true. Incredible. If you were to imagine life as a 104-year-old, it would unlikely involve living independently, being a social butterfly, and owning the latest iPhone. But that's the reality for... 104-year-old Maria Riley at Sydney's Matraville RSL Club, which Miss Riley has been visiting for many years. The former nurse celebrated 104 laps around the sun with a whopping 70 guests. Crikeys. Science would nominate a healthy lifestyle as the key for a long and happy life. And Miss Riley's lifetime habits of eating fresh food and avoiding alcohol would attest to that. But her daughter, Ruby, believes finding love at an elderly age cemented her mum's will to keep on living. When she married uh, Jim when she was 80, (laughs) so she was 80 when she got married, they were very happy for a long time and it made her want to live each day with him, according to her daughter. They had a beautiful marriage until Jim died a few years ago. He was such a gentleman. Now it's all the kids and grandkids that still make her very happy. Um, Okay, there we go. Now, Miss Riley is Malaysian in background, so she obviously is Asian. She had a tough early life, living through the 1941 Japanese invasion of then Malaya during the Second World War. Throughout that period, she would often have to make a cup of rice last a week while trying to feed her two young children. Oh, boy. And we complain when the bloody internet goes down. Anyway, when Miss Riley was 50, she visited Australia for her daughter's wedding and she never returned home. She continued her career as a nurse and then became a tea lady for the waterboard the utility company that is now called Sydney Water. Now, during that time, she met her future husband, World War II veteran Jim Riley. The heartwarming story of how the couple came to be was outlined in Miss Riley's... Mr Riley, oops, eulogy, written by their good friend and former Ramwick Council Mayor, Noel D'Souza. It read... It was as a member of Bondi Junction RSL Club where Jim spent a great deal of his time with his notorious mates, otherwise known as the Table of Ten. Here, he also first met a certain young lady named Maria. Each day, he would say good morning to this young lady as she made her way to indoor bowls. Each day, that certain young lady would ignore him. (laughs) She said the men were too loud and she didn't want to get involved with their drinking. Jim's persistence went on for a whole decade. 
It wasn't until Jim received a hip replacement that he started playing the sympathy card. Maria was volunteering with St Vincent de Paul and happened to be responsible for looking after senior citizens in the ward. She saw her cheeky friend from the club and took it upon herself to personally take care of him. There we go. It was with Jim's wit and gentleman charm from his hospital bed that he wooed her. It wasn't long before they were soon an item on the RSL floor and the club scene across the eastern suburbs. And it was on, this is, listen to this, and it was on New Year's Eve at the tender age of 76 that Jim popped the question. They were married. In 1996, in Edgecliffe, Miss Riley kept her soon-to-be husband waiting at the altar for over an hour. <laughs> but it was a short time to wait for the next 15 or so years. They spent happily in love, something their families largely credit to Miss Riley's long life. Reaching Mrs Riley's age is so rare that the Australian Bureau of Stats does not keep data on the number of people her age in Australia. A spokesman said it only groups population figures into a 100-plus due to data uh, of individual years in that ASCRA. Okay, so basically they don't know how many centenarians we have. Is that right? Anyway, this 104-year-old still loves a trip to the local Rissole and a sneaky slap on the pokies, although she still never drinks alcohol and instead opts for a cup of hot water. Isn't she great? She has a couple of hearing issues and she's quite fragile, but other than that, she's okay. Good honour. What a great story that is. And to have 70 people come to your birthday over the weekend. You're 104. I don't know if I can get that many to my wedding. Good story, isn't it? Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, well, that'll conclude today's Marcus Paul in the Morning. A variety of topics in the program. I hope you enjoyed it. Podcast, Prawncast will be up a little later as well. Please give us a like and follow on our social media or up on, uh, what, we're on Twitter. Not that I do much on it. <laughs> Certainly the Facebook page. That's where you'll find the majority of the content. And YouTube, another video set to go up today, okay? Uh, both Marcus Paul in the Morning. Oh, Instagram. Yeah, although I don't do much on that either. If you would like to have your say, the best way is via the Facebook page at this point. Thank you for your company today. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Look after each other and I look forward to your company then between 7 and 9 right around Australia on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. And, of course, a little later on the podcast. If you are listening via that, give it a share on your social media for us. I'd appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your day. Back tomorrow, Marcus Paul in the morning. Bye.